Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The best things happen after dark. Nightclubs are the ultimate space for self-expression, escape, music, socializing, and forgetting, for a moment, the outside world. They're a place to discover ourselves, find new friends and fall in love. As humans, we like to dance to a beat and there's nothing like a good night out. I'm Jodie Harsh. I'm a DJ, producer and occasional club promoter. I know how to tear up a dance floor and for this podcast, I want to explore with my guests how club culture and going out has shaped their identities and informed their work. I've got us the guest list and Q-Jump sorted, so we'll delve right into the hazy memory banks and hit the floor. This is Life of the Party. This week's guest decamped from the States in the early 90s to immerse herself in London's music, arts and nightlife. She's a leader and collaborator in the creative fields and a huge figurehead of the city's queer culture, especially via the legendary Ducky that she set up with friends 25 years ago. She's a radio DJ, a children's book author, and since 2016 has held the position as London's first night czar, a role that requires her to ensure the city's nocturnal life is given the care and attention it deserves. From the Jersey Shore to the Mayor's Office on the South Bank of the Thames via a thousand dance floors, Amy LeMay, this is your life of the party. Oh my gosh, Jones, that's like the best intro anyone's ever done for me. Thank you so much. I pride myself on my introductions here. Thank you very much. That's awesome. <laughs> How's it going? Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's great to chat to you. It really, really is. Um, and gosh, what strange, crazy times we're in. Absolutely, yeah. You know, um, just just needed to say that. Um, yeah, absolutely. I feel you. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just so funny to to think about, think back and think about all the times we've been on dance floors together yeah. and, yeah. you know, just performing and yeah. dancing and playing records and absolutely. living absolutely. our lives in London. That's now a lifetime ago. Yeah. Before we get there, I want to start back in your early days. So you grew up in New Jersey, I understand, from quite a big family. Um, was there much of a party atmosphere at home? Um, well, <laughs> that's uh, interesting. Uh, my family, yeah, I come from a, a big um, Irish, Italian, American family. And I often say that we're, we were either screaming at each other or not talking to each other. Like there was nothing in between, really. Um, so maybe it's that kind of Irish-Italian volatility <laughs> that just made it um, very high octane. And yeah, everybody's trying to kind of outdo each other, outjoke each other, outprank each other. And it's quite exhausting. Really. Right. <laughs> Um, but it was, you know, I just like growing up on the Jersey Shore was great because I was on the beach. I was mm. growing up with loads of music around me. Um, I mean, New York, I could see across the water. Not that I could ever really get there. Um, mm. When did you get there? When did you discover New York City and its nightlife? Well, very luckily, I had a gay uncle 
who was also my godfather, who, and my mother was very strict and I'm the eldest and I'm a girl. So like I wasn't allowed to do anything really. And um, my uncle was like, oh, Amy, why don't you come and visit me? in New York. I was like, yeah, like dying to get there. (laughs) My mother was like, under no circumstances, only if your uncle comes, picks you up, picks you up from New Jersey at the train station, takes you back, you can stay overnight, and then he's got to bring you back, back. And then, you know, so he was effectively doing two round journeys, round trip journeys. And he did that. And he exacted his revenge on my mother by basically taking me to every single gay bar that he could in New York. I was 15. He took me to, you know, all the the bar where all the boys were like having showers, you know, <laughs> splash bar. Amazing. He took me to Charlie's Rawhide. He took me like, because he was a bit of a kind of leather queen, a bit of right. a leather daddy. And so <laughs> he was, you know, he'd be walking around, um, the village with his cat and nine tails just kind of like you know just playing around and trying to attract the boys and and you were and his I, his sidekick in that. I was <laughs> and then he took me to like this this uh cafe that was run by a bunch of lesbians of course and you know this very very attractive butch gal kind of like was you know, flirting with me. And he said, she likes you. She likes you. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm a lesbian. Oh, <laughs> that was your kind of realization. Well, well, you know, it was that moment when you think, mm, that's why I don't really fit in at high school. <laughs> that's why I'm. I like clubs and I like girls. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. I think you're like me in the sense that you're a, a subculture fan. Have you always been attracted to the more underground side of, of pop culture ever since you can remember? Ever since I can remember, absolutely. You know, I grew up in a place where it was the musical vortex. Sort of if you if you did a Venn diagram of New Jersey, you'd have Bruce Springsteen in one bit and then you'd have John Bon Jovi in another bit. Where I grew up was like that sweet spot <laughs> where both of them... <laughs> sort of overlapped so you know the idea of subculture was just something I was so hungry for because all we had was that kind of guitar rock so where did you look where did you look to I'm feeling you're a a John Waters girl yeah oh yeah yeah John Waters um just like we were quite lucky that there was like an alternative radio station that somebody ran out of their house just like randomly and then they as a pet project they opened up their own kind of like a venue, I guess, where they put local bands on and stuff. So, and that was called the Green Parrot. So we used to like go to the Green Parrot and there was a place called um, the Inkwell uh, in on the Jersey Shore that was a kind of infamous kind of hippie place in the 60s. But then all the 80s, you know, kind of, subculture kids then kind of took it over and and made it their own all the weirdos yeah 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 and amazing so you could go there and you know meet weirdos of of every shape kind and flavor so I felt like I I fit right in (laughs) and then you moved to London in the early 90s so what was London's nightlife landscape back then when you first hit town oh my goodness well you know it was 
how do I describe it? It was very segmented. So there was not much overlap between sort of, I'm just talking about the gay scene. There wasn't much overlap, say, between, you know, girls and guys. Um, You had your pubs and stuff, but even that seemed very delineated. Um, And the music, it was all like happy handbag house. There was no kind of alternative queer scene at the time. It was really difficult to find that. There were still a lot of places that would not let women in mm. at all, even if wow. you, even if you identified as lesbian or you. Wow. Yeah, and so there were a lot of places that my male friends could go that I was just not not allowed in. Um, and I guess so. Soho would have been in full swing at this stage. Early nineties was peak Soho gay heaven right what was interesting was when I first came over in 92 93 94 was just just as Soho was happening and what I witnessed was a lot of our local gay pubs you know because they used to be in every corner of London that people stopped going to them (laughs) and they started going into Soho because all of a sudden it was like the place to be and there was this thing called the pink pound and all of a sudden you know sort of our rights were a bit more on the agenda it felt like we were getting somewhere it felt like we could be just a little bit more open even though the political atmosphere was still very uh very difficult and very dangerous Mm. Mm. um but there was a defiance there i guess Mm. in so and i guess even the streets of london were probably quite hostile to anyone who was visually openly queer i'd imagine um, yeah, I I think that, well, to be honest, I think we still, you know, get that now. Homophobia hasn't gotten gone away. Of course. Um, I guess London has always had that amazing feeling, though, of you can be anything you want to be and be whoever you want to be. And that mm. was certainly the attraction for me because I did not feel like I could be open and be myself in the way that I wanted to be where I grew up and so London was the best place for me and I've not been disappointed (laughs) at all do you you remember your first ever night out in London do you remember how that felt and where you went oh my gosh oh my gosh it was probably somewhere like the two brewers or something yeah (laughs) you know what I mean I think I, I think I went to see like Sade and skinny bitch. Um, oh, at... <laughs> you know, like some... it was like that because I, you know, I was kind of squatting in Brixton for a while and then got a flat share and and so it was very much kind of South London focused and and we go to the Two Brewers or we go to the Vauxhall Tavern. Um, but a lot of these places were at the time quite quiet because more people were going into Soho, you know, in that right. shiny new gay bars. Absolutely. Were you in a, a, flat, a flat share with um, with other gay people? I was. I was in a flat share with um, five Spanish people, um, all gay men and lesbians. Uh, wow. I didn't speak Spanish. <laughs> that sounds like a, That sounds fun. <laughs> well, I got a crash course in Almodovar. That's... Right, yeah. <laughs> My favorite director. Perfect. Yeah, yeah perfect. Because the first job I got when I when I moved to London was at First Out. I don't know if you remember. You're probably too young Bookshop. for First Out. Book cafe or book It was cafe. a cafe. It was a yes. cafe. It was just a Tottenham Court Road station, mm. like just on 
that bit in between Charing Cross Road, you know, Tottenham Court Road, St. Giles High Street. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I worked there for five years, um, making cappuccino, making veggie lasagna, you know, and it was like a queer community cafe that we don't really have anymore in London. I really miss it. You know, there was a bar downstairs. Friday nights used to be girls night. Um, You know, it was so mixed. It was the kind of place you could sit and have a coffee and like meet people and, you know, as well as just be yourself. Like Mm. it was it was a unique atmosphere. I really miss it. Mm. But as a result, yeah. I met loads of people through working there and all of the people that I uh, worked, well, all the people that I lived with in this flat share in Brixton right. worked at First Out with right, me. Right, so right. yeah, so we were kind of like a little gang, but they were yeah. into totally different music. They were going to, uh, you know, they were going to all the um, all kind of different clubs like DTPM and, oh, yeah. you know, places like that where, I was more like I was going to the indie clubs, like you were more pop stars, pop stars, yeah, pop stars, and then started Ducky and you know. So you created sort of a gay indie paradise in Ducky. I mean, I've been several times over the years and Mm -hmm. twirled about to the readers' (laughs) wives, and and it's now is it the same the same team that you started it with? Yeah. It's sort of like your chosen family, isn't it? Yeah. It's uh, Simon and I yeah. uh, started it. We got the DJs, Reader's Wives, who've been our DJs yeah. every, you know, every every Saturday since yeah. we started. Wow. I mean, we have had holidays, let's be honest. But, you know, um, and then Jay and Dominic, who've been on the door. And yeah. and that is that is our ducky family. Wow. Twisted, um, sadistic abusive and loving <laughs> like all the best families are <laughs> exactly and you must have had lifelong regulars as well who have been coming for the whole duration of the night right do you have people that are still coming decades later yeah it's crazy this year is our 25th year um wow. the end of november and you know we've had all sorts of life celebrations at ducky i mean it's crazy when you have people that started coming when they were really young and then and then they're like oh I'm having my retirement due here next week and I'm just like oh my gosh (laughs) um or you know my favorite was these two two guys who were a couple and they met a lesbian couple at Ducky they had kids with them like you know in uh you know gay family way and then when their kids turned 21, they brought the kids to Ducky to say, this wow. is where your mums and dads met. Met. Wow. And my mind was blown. And I was like, you know, you never imagine that you're having this kind of impact on people's lives. You know, you just think, oh, it just having a bit of a dance. And, um, totally. You know. But more than having a bit of a dance, what you're doing, you've set up a real sense of community, mm. which is something that good nights, good club nights can really create. I mean, we can we can talk about the sense of community that we get from clubs because mm. we know that that's... Absolutely. And I, I've always seen Ducky as an extended family mm. um, that, you know, once 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 you come once... You're part of the family, no matter yeah. where you are in the world. And, 
you know, you can go away for five, ten years. You can come back. There'll probably be a few people stood in exactly the same place. (laughs) Um, There'll be a whole slew of new people. But it's just this beautiful extended family that share similar values, that love the same music, that like to talk, that come from a variety of backgrounds, that have all been in London or called London home in some way whether you're passing through or staying here for life, whether you were born here, it's just, um, it's something quite magical about it that you don't really think about when you're young Mm. and doing it because we were like, wow, we just want to drink beer and listen to David Bowie and be gay. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) When there was nowhere to really do that. So that's why we set it up. And so then you realize there's other people that feel that way. You know, it's true with so many clubs. This is absolutely, you know, it's it's that music bringing people together that just transcends so much. And it's been a decade or two of club um, club closures as well in London, you know, and I think you really helped save the RVT from closing down, right? You were really instrumental in that. Yeah, I've been leading a campaign to try and save the Vauxhall Tavern or the RVT, as it's called now, since the 90s. Mm. Um, In the 90s, even before social (laughs) media existed, um, when at the time Lambeth Council owned it and and wanted to sell it off. So we got loads of drag queens down to the... um, to the council meeting and caused a bit of a ruckus. I love that. (laughs) And and, and then if you flash forward 20 years, you know, we were running another campaign with RVT Future because it had been sold to um, an international property developer. They wanted to knock it down, build a hotel. And we said over our dead queer bodies, basically. Mm. And launch the campaign to save it you know it's still owned by that company and we don't really feel like it will be fully saved until it comes into community ownership and that right. is our, that is our ultimate goal for it right. but i guess as nights are it also you know what i've been able to do because i could see and we were getting so many stories of other places closing down, you know, LGBTQ plus venues, but also other nightclubs that we knew mm. and that we loved so much. Mm. And so when I was appointed Night Czar, what I, one of the first things I did was commission some research into the loss of LGBTQ plus venues because mm. we had loads of stories, but we didn't have the data. Sure. As soon as we got the data, it was even worse than what we imagined. We had lost... of our LGBTQ plus venues in London in the space of a decade. To luxury flats. It's heartbreaking. And and it was down to three reasons. Uh, Threats of development, uh, rise in rents, and rise in business rates. Right. And these were threats that we then found out were were threats to not just to LGBTQ plus spaces, but also threats to grassroots live music venues, to nightclubs more widely, um, and uh, and also to independent pubs. And these are the things that you know. That they draw m- people to London. Yeah, they make London, yeah, London. They make London, yeah. That is why we love living here. It's why people want to live, work, visit here. We lose that. We lose the spirit of London. So that's when the mayor said, right, we need to do something about it. And... 
you know, trying to stem that flow of closures. And so mm. I'm really pleased to say that in the four years that I've been Knights are, we've managed to have no net loss. So, wow. and we were just seeing green shoots of growth and COVID hit. And it hit, yeah. <laughs> and that's the, that's the frustrating thing. And so what we're doing now is really just trying to put as much resource as we can into saving those most at-risk sure. venues. You know, that, that, that heartbeat of London. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In your role as Knights are, um, what else are you striving to protect and change? Because it's not just clubs, is it? It's a bit broader. Mm, yeah, so it's a, it's an interesting question because, you know, there are other cities around the world that have night czars or nightmares, as they're sometimes mm. called. Yeah. And, um, That's and, your drag name. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what everybody calls me and I pretend not to know. Um, uh-huh. no, that... Um, Basically, like in, in cities like Amsterdam or New York, Berlin, Paris, Sydney, you know, I have counterparts that are doing similar roles. They really focus on bars, pubs and clubs. But in London, I really felt quite strongly that we needed a, a wider approach, that if I just focused on that, that it doesn't take into account the whole kind of ecosystem that we need mm. in order to make nighttime thrive. Happen, yeah. yeah. Um, and and often people just talk about bars and clubs and pubs from a user perspective and never from a worker perspective because people that do that kind of work, well, they're other people. Well, I'm that other person because I've always sure. worked at night and you know what it's like running club yeah. nights. And you've been You've been in the position where you've had You've been boots on the ground. You've been a club promoter. So yeah. you know exactly. Yeah. Listen, I, I was running clubs in Vauxhall when nobody would even step out onto the streets. Yeah. Because it was so dangerous. And, yeah. you know, we felt very threatened. And mm. so I've seen a lot of changes for the good um, of London. And that that kind of that frontline experience Ha- just informs my decisions every day. So I know what it's like to be a woman working at night, for example, which is why I- I've been doing so much around safety for women at night. Um, I know what it's like to work at night, which is why we did a load of research into finding out just how many people are working in London at night. I was totally shocked when the data came back. We've got 1.6 million Londoners regularly working at night and that's a third of our workforce and and if you look at the inequality that people face when they work at night it's shocking it is shocking so 
I'll give you an example. It's it's an NHS example, actually, because I, I went to visit um, a hospital in London as, you know, I do these night surgeries where I go out and about and meet people and stuff and always try and visit, visit a hospital to see what the staff, um, what it's like for the staff. And in this hospital, they had a brand new vegan cafe, really low prices, super fresh food, you know, salads abounding everywhere. But it closed at 6 p.m. Right. So and this is a world-renowned cancer treatment hospital with a lot of staff working overnight. They had to get delivered food, like from Uber Eats, Deliveroo, yeah. you know, takeaways. Yeah. They didn't have access to this cheap, healthy fresh, food. healthy food. Yeah. Wow. And if you think, okay, well, how many night shifts are you doing? And how many times are you ordering takeaway when really you should probably be having something a bit healthier? Yeah, and it's and, expensive. And it's expensive, et cetera, et cetera. All of a sudden, you get a sense of just how, over a long space of time, the inequalities mount up quite quickly for those that work at night. And so rather than try and not get people to work at night, I'm trying to raise the bar for everybody that works at night. Mm. And so, you know, I think our economy at night, well, we know it was before COVID, the economy at night was growing faster than mm. it was during the day. We were on an upward trajectory. Yeah. There was everything Absolutely. to play for, like seriously. Absolutely. And uh, and I was, you know, <laughs> we had so many fantastic things on the go um, from City Hall. And this virus has just stopped us in our mm. tracks. And, we, you know, we're we're what do you say recalibrating of course but the inequalities haven't gone away right for people that work at night and that's something that we will be focusing on right and then in your role what what does a day look like for the nights are I love that I love this idea of you doing your your um, night surgeries and kind of like visiting the, the the real people out there working at night so what what else do you get up to Oh my gosh. Well, unfortunately, during this COVID period, it's been a lot of sitting in front of my computer. Right. Which, oh, quite, same. <laughs> quite frankly, I'm just, I'm not suited to, you know, sure. one of the things I really love about my job was that I'm always, I was always on the go. Yeah. I'd have really busy days and really busy nights. Um, and I could be doing anything from meeting with a government minister to, you know, um, meeting some night workers, talking to, you know, some some people on the, you know, working on the night tube or, you know, it's just so varied. And that's what I loved. Um, but now it's just become a bit more flat screen, sure, unfortunately, sure. but the yeah. but the issues don't go away. And Absolutely. so at the moment, my days are very long um, and they are really focused on advocating for London's nightlife as loudly and strongly as I possibly can. Mm. But also doing a lot of things behind the scenes that maybe isn't so sexy or mm. interesting or headline grabbing. Sure, <laughs> But sure. it's really yeah. quite important. So, for example, I've been heading up this reopening high streets um, uh, uh, task force in City Hall, it's all about like pavement licenses. 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like it's sure, not it's yeah. not it's not headline grabbing. It's not yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you know, but basically it was around the four you know, when hospitality could reopen on the fourth of July and everybody was like, Oh my gosh, what's gonna happen? And we went European in our yes, Alfresco dining. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. And and Got so it. I was working with every local authority, with the police, with the industry and City Hall to make sure that it went smoothly. Got it. And nothing happened, which is great. You know, that's a okay. success. <laughs> yeah, because Got Because it. it wasn't a disaster. It actually went really well. <laughs> yeah. But again, not headline grabbing. Not sexy, it, yeah. Because yeah. no, <laughs> really... it went well. Exactly. Oh, totally. <laughs> so that that's kind of, you know, like I know that people have had criticisms, you know, of, of me and my role and everything, but... I'm doing a heck of a lot of stuff behind the scenes that just isn't, you know, that isn't headline grabbing. And sure. I, I, I always have an open door policy and really yeah. want to engage with everyone sure. that cares about the things that I care about. Even if they don't, I need to convince them yeah. that it's important. Sure. Can we talk about clubs being a a safe place to experience pleasure and escape because I think it's so important as I'm sure you do. I think you've hit on something so important there. Um, and this is, <laughs> this is so difficult to change the conversation for people that think that nightclubs are a place of unbridled danger and hedonism. And it may be that for some people, but the owners and the operators and the people that are working there create a safe space. So mm. people can express themselves and be themselves. But this is what I keep telling the government is that nightclubs and, and bars and pubs are part of the solution when it mm. comes to COVID, not part of the problem. We're used to operating in in very health and safety minded ways we have mm. to uphold licensing regulations you know again not sexy stuff nobody mm. really wants to think about it but an owner or an operator that is responsible will be taking this stuff extremely seriously mm. having to deal with you know um with security how many people you're letting in how many people you're letting out you know what is your vulnerability and welfare plan um mm. what happens when you know someone falls ill you know all of these things require planning mm. and every good operator and that means everybody who's got a license sure. you know really adheres to this and mm. so many businesses have spent so much money making sure that their places are COVID secure, yeah, yeah. that they're as safe as possible. Um, and yet we're still not allowed to open. Nightclubs are still not yeah. allowed to open. Yeah. And they're one of only two types of venues that are not allowed to open. There are nightclubs and there are sexual entertainment venues that are not allowed right. to open. And I it, mean, the hospitality sectors are just getting so much blame for the, for the rising cases of COVID yet. Every venue and restaurant I've been to this side of lockdown has been taking extreme measures to protect their guests and, and operate safely. Yeah, we've seen it again and again where yeah. um, restaurants do take it seriously. They know they they know how to follow the rules and regulations. It's like <laughs> this it's, it's it's their bread and butter, literally. Mm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so this is why I. I don't really understand um, why the government 
is really going against uh, every bit of guidance that has been given Mm. out thus far, particularly around letting people out all at one time, Mm. which for any nightclub owner, operator, promoter would know that's one thing you never (laughs) Never, yeah. ever do. Well, I see you put a lot of pressure on the government in in the media about this 10 p.m. curfew that is clearly destroying so many businesses. Yeah, it really is. And I think that it's also having a terrible effect uh, when it comes to the virus. We're exposing more people than we need to. If I thought, oh, OK, here we have an opportunity to kind of stretch things out a bit, you know, to really become more of a 24-hour city, because if you... You know, if people feel like they can do things at a natural pace that works for them, not everybody wants to be out doing everything at the same time. Let's stretch it out. But in Mm. fact, what the government has done is the complete opposite, crammed everybody into doing certain things in a limited amount of time and putting us at even greater risk. Um, It's unacceptable. And, you know, the mayor and I will continue to call on an urgent review of this um, and also to see the evidence behind the reasoning for it, because the government has not been able to produce any evidence showing that uh, there are riskier places than, quite frankly, anywhere else. Sure, sure. And how how can we as an industry ensure that there's a culture to come back to when the government says it's safe to reopen? Like, what what can what can we do? That's a really good question, and. <laughs> I wouldn't blame people for feeling really demoralized right now. You know, we had the chancellor saying, oh, you're going to have to retrain um, and, you know, get a viable job. (laughs) So you know what I did, Jodes? I went on to um, the government website and, you know, they have this like, what career work for you? The questionnaire. questionnaire. I want to do one. I took the questionnaire. Uh, I took the questionnaire and it said actor. You should be an oh. actor. Um, and I thought, wow, that's interesting. That's, that's not a, that's not a viable job, according to yeah. the chancellor. Um, and and so there's there's a mismatch here. And sure. so I wouldn't I, I don't blame people for feeling demoralized and thinking, what can I do? What should I do? Our whole being, our raison d'etre, everything that we've worked so hard for to create a nighttime culture that is the envy of the world across, you know, here in London has just been decimated. Creates tourism. All of yeah, the tourism. Yeah. You know, the, across the whole of the UK, it's worth £66 billion. This is what I don't understand. How can we, as a nation, afford to ignore that kind of money sure, when we've got sure. so many other challenges? Yeah, I mean, from my point of view, I almost feel some days that my reality is dissolving my whole life is based around art and creativity and the joy of uh, nightlife and live music and I feel like a big section of the government just think we're a load of hedonists on pills but I'm of course you know and I know that clubs are a meeting space for people and a safe space and support a whole infrastructure of people from taxi drivers to dancers to bouncers and we these yeah. people need to feed their kids and live. Yes. How how do we do this? Yeah. Well, I would really ask um, and urge, I mean, obviously, you know, people that are listening to your podcast, like, you know, they're already on board, right? Yeah, yeah. 
Um, maybe, 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 maybe we need to make sure some people in government hear this podcast. But yeah, um, I would say that we, as Londoners, we're a resilient city. We are such a creative city, and I, I really have. I, I, I will not let this spark in me die. That says we will come back, and I know sure. we will. Yeah. I know we will, but it's going to be, it's going to be hard. Mm. And it, the, the nightscape might look very different. Mm. That was actually going to be my next question. What, how do you imagine responsible nightlife culture looks like post COVID? Yeah. I, of course, none of us know. Yeah. That's an open-ended question. But Yeah. I mean, I'm not Mystic Meg and yeah. I wish I was, but, um, <sighs> I've got I've got a lot of fears. Again, they're not like you know particularly sexy headline grabbing fears, sure. but but one is around the the government's proposed changes to planning law, which would mean that like bars and pubs that maybe closed under COVID and maybe couldn't reopen, for example, uh, could be easily snapped up by developers and turned into flats. Right. Um, and this is kind of what we saw a decade ago, you know, 15 years ago in London. And we've spent the past five years like trying to reverse that. Sure. Um, yeah. And what I'm fearful of is that now the government's trying to change the legislation to make it easier to close our venues. Right. What I'm trying to do, what I'm trying to focus on is supporting the most vulnerable of those venues. So, you know, the mayor and I have this 2.3 million pound fund for culture at risk that's aimed at the most at risk venues, LGBTQ plus venues, artist studios, independent cinemas, um, and grassroots live music venues. So if I could get through this crisis without losing any lgbtq plus venues i pray that that would be the case i don't know whether that will happen but it is you know it's kind of like my own personal goal as well as a goal for london because i know how precious they are and how hard we've all worked to save them absolutely yeah we need our we need our safe spaces we need our places to freely be ourselves and express ourselves and you know, people say to me sometimes, oh, what, you know, why do, oh, you've got gay marriage now, you've got this, you've got that. And I'm like, you know, <laughs> you don't get it because just because it's unlawful for us uh, to be discriminated against doesn't mean it doesn't happen. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, let's, let's end on a more um, positive note. You're, you're throwing a party. Give me three names for people that you're, you've got on the guest list. They can be living or dead. Oh, my gosh. That's so hard. I'll tell you, the, one of the first people that popped into my mind was Norman Jay. Right. Okay. Um, just because he's so lovely and he's a great DJ and I love his music. And I think he's just like the kind of personality that you want at a party. Like, okay, yeah. Um, so he's he's the he's the DJ then. You've booked him yeah, to DJ. Yeah, yeah. Then I would want Divine. Oh, 
heaven. <laughs> Love. <laughs> I'd want Divine on stage performing, yeah. um, but then also just generally hanging out and being outrageous, and I would yeah. love that. Yeah. Um, gosh, I've got quite a motley crew already, don't I? Um, yeah. I'll tell you who I used to go out dancing with in my early years of um, being in London and had such great times on so many dance floors with um, Jimmy Somerville. Oh, wow. Yeah. Talk about a tour de force of a man. I mean, he was just, just glorious, really, honestly, just glorious. So yeah. Where would you used to go out? Oh my gosh. We used to go out in Brixton. We used to go, there was a, there was like some, it was like a Sunday night club in, um, was it the, at the Rock Garden or something? It was like, um, yeah, it was like a disco night and we used to go to all the gay pubs um, and yeah, then he sort of, he and his friends would go off to Hampstead Heath and then come back oh, to yeah. the pub. And, you know. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Um, good times, good times. Good times, good times. Really good times. Ah, Amy LeMay, thank you so much for coming on. This has been your life of the party and it's been a pleasure. Oh, pleasure's all mine, my dear. Oh, thank you. Keep up the good work. Thanks. This has been Life of the Party with me, Jodie Harsh. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you haven't subscribed just yet, please do. There's a new episode every week. Right, see you at the next party. 